Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, a senior science writer at TN. And on Opinionated Science, we share our stories of some of the weirdest and most interesting research that our team of scientists turned journalists have covered over the last two weeks. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Molly Campbell. How are you, Molly? Hey, Rory. I am great, thank you. How are you doing? Yes, I am well too. On uh, today's podcast, Molly is going to share with us the unlikely news that scientists have managed to sequence DNA from thin air, from literally the air. Uh, well, I'm very excited to hear about what's going on there. But uh, first, I was going to talk a bit about a study of chronic stress and hair loss that is particularly important during the COVID-19 pandemic. Not just because everyone is really stressed right now and almost tearing out their hair, uh, but because shockingly, 22% of COVID-19 patients report hair loss as a symptom in the following six months after a positive test. I had never heard about this being reported. No, me neither. But it's funny you should say that because I've I've not heard of it reported specifically, but it has been mentioned to me by people that I know who have had COVID. They just thought it was sort of coincidental. But yeah, yeah, I am I am actually now nearly six months post my positive COVID test. Mm-hmm. You can see previous episodes of Opinionated Science to hear me talk about that for ages. But uh, no, no hair loss to report. As far as I can, as far as I can tell, which is nice. To our, to our listeners who can't obviously see us, but I have the pleasure of seeing you on Zoom meetings, Rory. You have long, luscious locks right now, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> but um, but yes, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting side effect for that near nearly a quarter of COVID nineteen uh, patients who've, who've recovered, and the study I'm profiling today is a pretty elegant unpicking of why stressful events such as COVID-19 infection during a pandemic might lead to hair loss that are actually nothing to do with any kind of viral process. It really seems to be common to a lot of very stressful events, um, subsequent hair loss that's often, you know, even overnight or or rapid. I think we've heard the stories of people's hair turning grey, but uh, hair loss is something that's that's really well documented in these events. And I should point out that the researchers in the study have used mice rather than stressed out humans to uh, to unpick this mechanism. But I think it's still a very valid uh, valid parable for how future research in humans might go in for, for different types of baldness. So um, I'll get into it. So it's a, a study published in Nature, and I'll pop it in the show notes as, as always, so you can take a read of our write-up of the study and also the research itself. And it's inter interdisciplinary study involving researchers from Harvard University and scientists from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, MIT, just a lot of smart people, really, mm-hmm. a lot of them um, packing into this study. And it's led by um, a professor at Harvard, Yache Shu. And uh, this study, as, as I said earlier, involved um, examining mice and uh, teasing out how their hair regrows under stressed and non-stressed conditions. Now, as a bit of background, our hair cycles through several stages during our life, a growth phase called anagen, a degeneration phase called catagen, and a kind of resting phase called telogen. Now, in anagen, uh, stem cells in the, the base of our hair follicles called hair follicle stem cells, a very sensible name, really, uh, they start dividing, and this ultimately produces um, the hair shaft and the long luscious locks uh, you mentioned earlier, Molly. Now, in catagen, that growth process stops 
And then in Telogen, uh, the hair essentially goes into a rest mode. And after a while, the hair follicle naturally falls out and the whole process can begin again in a circle of life. But sometimes after a very stressful event, all the HFSCs in a particular area of hair start going into a rest phase, that telogen all at once. And this can have catastrophic consequences with massive hair loss and very sudden hair loss um, being seen um, in a short period of time. So the researchers wanted to examine essentially first what could possibly be be happening with a, a stressful event and how it could be linked to hair loss. So they started off by removing the adrenal glands from mice. So these are the the glands that essentially produce all stress hormones. So a very kind of um, blunt approach, but one that produced results immediately. So these mice who were now free of any stress hormones were compared to um, control healthy mice. And uh, I mean, there's not really any scientific way to put this. They shaved them. They shaved the mice and um, shaved them bald. So this is uh, one of the the few studies I've, I've read that involves lots of pictures of naked mice um, being compared against each other for, for hair growth. But I actually recommend that anyone listening does go and check out the study because these pictures are wild. So after they had removed uh, the adrenal glands from certain mice, after 19 days, these mice were, you know, Elvis levels of long, luscious hair regrowth. They were totally restored, whereas control mice that still had these stress hormones still were mostly bald, um, barely any hair had regrown. So this is a a nice sort of introductory study to um, to highlight that the stress hormones were obviously having some um, effect. They also looked in more healthy mice with intact adrenal glands and showed that after sort of mild stress was administered over a period of time, um, any hair regrowth was, was lowered. So that's a pretty neat sort of experiment on its own, but then the team wanted to tease out the mechanism involved here and they went several steps further. They initially used gene editing techniques to selectively delete the receptor that stress hormones uh, signal through in uh, different types of cells. So initially you'd think that with the, the, the role of the stem cells that I mentioned earlier, these HFSCs, um, that they would be the culprit involved in this hair loss. But in fact, when they deleted the receptor in HFSCs alone, uh, there was no effect on hair regrowth. Instead, they needed to dig deeper into the mice's um, skin cells, and they found a kind of support structure underneath the HFSCs called dermal papillae. And when the receptor was deleted in these cells, uh, they saw the the same effect as as if the, the mice had had their adrenal glands removed entirely. So they managed to narrow it down to this one particular cell type They then went further and showed that there was a particular protein um, that was involved in a signaling cascade between these stress hormones and the dermal papillae and eventually the hair shaft uh, called GAS6. When they used gene editing to spread GAS6 um, over the skin cells of of balding mice, they were able to show that these hair regrowth effects were, were very clear. So it essentially ties this one protein, GAS6, to uh, the role of, of hair regrowth. And what they've suggested is that um, when this GAS6 protein uh, is, is in action, uh, the cells in the, the hair, the mice's follicular cells spend a lot less time in rest phase. So they're able to show that, for example, the, 
the mice without adrenal glands spent um, three times as much uh, of their, their hair cells were in growth phase as opposed to, to healthy mice. So this is ultimately what leads to this in, incredible hair regrowth. Now, uh, as I've seen some coverage uh, reflecting at this point, this might have um, some people among us reaching for a vial of gastics and uh, desperately smearing it over their um, bald patches. But in fact, that's not going to cut the mustard yet because the study here, which involved mice, has some um, translational issues that need to be addressed before we can start applying these results to humans. First off, uh, stress hormones in mice are quite different from the ones present in humans. So um, the axis involved here is one between GAS6 and a stress hormone called corticosterone. Now, corticosterone doesn't exist in humans. Instead, we have uh, cortisol, and the researchers definitely intend to then investigate um, the similar axis in human skin cells to see if there's that same process being involved but we don't have evidence of that yet and uh, this piece was accompanied by a, a kind of opinion piece in, in nature a news and views article um, written by Rui Yi from uh, the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and he also pointed out that whilst the majority of mouse hair follicles um, are resting intelligent at any one time only roughly 10% of human cells do so if the effects seen in this study are because GAS6 is encouraging mouse follicles to move out of telogen and into antigen, any corresponding effect in human cells might be more limited. And uh, for these reasons, I don't think we can get too excited. But I did speak um, to Professor Xu about this study, and she pointed out that there could be um, translational potential for this research into um, other forms of baldness apart from um, stress-induced hair loss. So um, there are some examples, for example, of male pattern baldness, our, our um, male readers will be excited to hear. There are some examples of male pattern baldness um, having a mechanism which involves extended telogen, um, but that's, that's only a, a small subset of them. So um, more research will definitely need to be done, but uh, it's a, a hair-raising study. I love your puns, they're amazing. I can't help myself. Um, what do you think about that then? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I have this habit, and I don't know if it's from, obviously, studying science at university, but whenever I hear about a mouse-related study that I find interesting, I try and think about, well, how would they study it in humans? So I'm thinking, well, obviously, you can't remove the adrenal glands because, well, of obvious reasons. Um, but I was looking to see whether there are any sort of genetic conditions whereby there's sort of dysregulation of like stress hormones and mm. there are so there's a condition um might not be saying this right apologies if it is incorrect uh, corticotropin independent macronodular adrenal hyperplasia where there is a lot oh, of wow yeah i know but so it's one of the underlying causes of Cushing syndrome, where there's excess cortisol. Now, I know obviously we've said the mouse hormones are different to those that we find in humans, but just wonder if it'd be quite interesting to look at sort of hair in individuals that have this sort of excess level of stress hormone and, and explore that. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting to think because I'm, I'm, I certainly was thinking when I was, I was reading this study, you know, I've been stressed at several points during this pandemic, if not kind of the entire time. Um, and, you know, uh, my, my luscious locks have already been previously mentioned. I think that's a bit generous, but um, I'll, I wouldn't fight the point. Um, 
but you know, I've I I, I kind of wondered what, what is it that kind of triggers um, a particularly stressful event into into provoking this, and um, what Professor Xu said is that the the stress hormones even without hair loss kind of naturally um, regulates regulates this move into to telogen, this rest phase, and, and then back. So that kind of suggests that there's this process that's that's always ongoing, and and presumably there's you know a, a, a number of environmental factors here, genetic factors that just cause that that balance to be um, tipped. So it does seem like it would be a, a great experiment to to look at people for whom that balance is already a bit out of kilter. Uh, to see if, um, you know, I, th- I think that's often how we've seen these kind of interesting studies look at, look at, um, you know, rarer cases and then kind of uh, expand it to a, a more general population. But, you know, I'm, I'm uh, certainly no expert in uh, the different hormones involved. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to see how much it is a case of just replacing corticosterone with cortisol and then saying, yeah, hey, there we go, same results, or whether there's actually <laughs> going to be more significant barriers one thing they did say is that the way they got gas six into the the cells was another form of of gene editing so unless you're doing this in vitro and sort of using human skin cells in a in a dish um it's certainly going to be harder to to use the the genetic toolbox that mouse researchers get to play with uh in humans so um it's certainly a an elegant study because it really has teased out this mechanism from from top to bottom which uh, I'm always I'm always pretty impressed by because it, it seemed like a ton of work. Yeah, absolutely. I don't did did the researchers kind of express where they were going next? Apart, from, I know obviously they said they would quite like to look at it into humans, but in in short term, did they give away any any hints as to where they were going? Sort of in the next few months or anything. Hmm. But yes, so that's the the kind of top to bottom of uh, this gas six study. Um, I'm certainly going to be following the, the researchers' interest to see if it translates to humans as, as well as the researchers are hoping it will. But I think I'd love to hear now about this uh, act of stealing DNA from thin air. How, how have they been doing that? I know, just when you thought 2020 slash 2021 couldn't get any more bizarre, here we are. <laughs> so um, the study I'm bringing to the table today is by researchers at Queen Mary University of London. And as you have suggested towards Rory, they have collected and sequenced DNA from the air. Now, a bit of context. So as almost shocking as that sounds, the idea of sequencing DNA from air, we obviously sequence DNA from the environment um, and that's known as environmental DNA. And it's, it's kind of a growing area of research, but you might be familiar with its use in studying sort of aquatic populations um, whereby DNA can be extracted from water uh, sort of supplies, so be it, I don't know, a reservoir, a lake, and essentially the DNA is extracted from that environment and it's sequenced and it helps researchers to study which sort of populations are in that area. So it's also been used quite a lot in sort of microbial genomics in studying what organisms are present in things like soil samples. But... The researchers behind this study are both sort of working in ecology and one of the researchers, Dr. Elizabeth Clare, who is a molecular ecologist, she studies bats primarily. And her colleague, Dr. Chris Folks, I apologise if I'm saying that incorrectly. Um, I have a friend with the same surname and I know it's sometimes pronounced a little bit different, Um, but we'll go with Folks. 
<laughs> he is studying um, mole rats primarily. Now, I know what you're thinking. What do bats and mole rats have in common? I am it's, thinking that. Yeah, I know. It's, it's the fact that they're quite difficult to get to. If you think of it in a quite obvious way, logistical barrier to their study in the environment is the fact that obviously bats are typically, apart from the one that flies around my flat every evening, <laughs> they, they like caves and mole rats like to burrow. So they're in really quite hard to access environments. So together, Dr. Folks and Dr. Claire began to think, well, you can extract DNA from water. Is there anything to say that environmental DNA cannot be extracted from air? And would this pose a solution to the barrier of being able to access certain species for ecological studies that tend to sort of hide away? Uh-huh. So they, they started speculating, they took a look at the literature and it didn't reveal any cases that had been published whereby animal DNA could be collected from the air doesn't mean to say it's not ever been done it's just there isn't anything in the literature stating here's a proof of concept study so that's what they decided to do so the researchers utilized the mole rats for the study so it didn't involve bats which is Dr Claire's area of research but obviously drew from her expertise in in ecology research mole rats are much cooler anyway yeah, they're, they're funky, aren't they? They look quite cool. I like them. I mean, less involvement in popular culture, but in science, they do all this weird stuff, which I don't think any other animal does. They're like resistant to cancer and all that. So, yes, yeah. love, love a mole rat. I think I have an affinity to them as well, because everyone calls me mole, but that's a, different, <laughs> that's a story for another day. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so... The mole rats were sort of in a dedicated housing area and they could be accessed by human researchers that would come in, obviously, and feed them and care for them. But aside from that, they very much stayed in this environment. It's an artificial burrow. And what the researchers did was they collected samples from within the main room in which the burrow, which is a box, was stored and also collected air samples from within the actual box. Now, the exact logistics of collecting the air sample, I am not an expert on air filtration devices. Okay. Just to put out there as a disclaimer, but my understanding is that the pump that was used to collect air, the filter within that pump was extracted and then Uh frozen and the DNA extracted amplified and sequenced using sort of high throughput sequencing methods so getting all the the bits up here right yeah because that's what i was really you know when you're trying to make sense of something in your mind and i was thinking right sequencing dna but obviously so what what do i do do i grab a palm full of air and you know (laughs) shove it in a sequencer it's quite a big net waving through the (laughs) the tunnel but yeah so the logistics side of it, to be fair, the researchers really, they explain it really nicely in the paper. So if you are interested in um, sort of filtration devices, I highly recommend you take a look. But essentially the method was translated from what is done to currently fil- uh, extract DNA from water. So what the researchers found was that there was mole rat DNA recovered from the burrows and also from the air samples of the room. So what that means is that this air DNA, which is what the researchers call the DNA, 
was able to move from the borough, which is essentially a housing environment for the mole rats, into the air of the, the room and unexpectedly kind of uh, there's pros and cons to this they found human dna as well in all of the samples so that includes the air extracted from as i say in the borough and in the room so you'd kind of think like okay well human dna if the researchers were going and intending to the animals in the room it you would think it might be there in higher concentrations but actually to be extracted from the burrows themselves kind of makes one one question someone's been getting friendly with the mole rats climbing in there bonding i spoke to dr claire and i asked her how she felt when they discovered that they were able to sort of extract and sequence that human dna and she told me that at first it was frustration because they you know initially thought right okay well this is a contaminant but then the fact that it was derived from all the samples including the controls then led to the frustration becoming intrigue because this is a, essentially a, a potential new avenue of research. You know, the ability to collect and sequence human DNA from air samples has so many different implications. Uh-huh. Um, so some that Dr. Claire pointed towards is kind of human forensic analysis. So say you walked in a room, you've committed a grandiose crime, you leave the scene, maybe you haven't left any, you know, hair follicles or thumbprints etc but you've left your essence your air bits yeah catch you with your air bits (laughs) so i think that's really really interesting to think about because there's so many different levels to that both kind of from i guess an ethical standpoint um but then also obviously we are in the covid19 global pandemic which i don't want to talk about too much because you know but um pathogens being able to sequence pathogens and their presence in an environment completely different avenue to you know testing the tracing isn't it really takes it to a whole different level Um, so (laughs) this is a proof of concept study and of course dr claire sort of emphasizes the fact that there are so many more steps required before this kind of could be implemented in maybe a large-scale study um a, a main factor being they don't know exactly how diluted the DNA gets in the sample. So if you have a really large room, for example, how much air would you need to gather to collect sort of a quantifiable amount of DNA? So that could potentially be the limit. It might be that the fact that this was a room and a small burrow, that meant that the DNA was able to be extracted in sequence. So in real life context, for obviously Dr. Claire's purpose, if she enters a humongous bat cave, is she still going to be able to detect that mm-hmm. DNA? How much air would she need to gather, essentially? Um, but as a proof of concept study, the researchers are extremely pleased, obviously, with their findings, and they're going to repeat the study and sort of adapt the method, but using more challenging cases. So, like I said, these locations where the DNA might have been more diluted if it's a large area or perhaps degraded you know you've got potential applications in sort of forensic um ancient dna it's really interesting yeah i wonder you know because dna is obviously incredibly durable mm-hmm. um you know it's been trialed for all these cool like data storage concepts because it lasts for ever and uh, it doesn't get damaged or anything so yeah if it was in like a you know a sealed tomb for example how uh, i'm very disappointed as a side note, they call it the air DNA. Sorry, but I really think essence is the, 
the way to go. I like that, Molly. A bit sinister, but I like it. But yes, how, how long does air DNA or essence or whatever you want to call it, how long does that last in something like a, a sealed tomb? Would you, as you say, be able to go in and just get your, your air pump and extract all this information, even if uh, other samples have been degraded? It's, it's really cool. Um, but yeah, it's I, I, again, hate to bring up COVID, but it does bring to mind the the studies of you know people examining how um, pathogens like COVID, where there's still some debate as to whether it's properly airborne or not, and what that means. You know, studying how ventilation of spaces might change um, levels of pathogen in the space, and probably applies to to this as well, right? Because the the interior of a mole rat burrow, I'm not intimately familiar with what that might be like, or though it sounds like some of the researchers got pretty familiar with it. But um, you know, I'm, I'd, I'd be keen to to see if other other scenarios which maybe aren't as a perfect example of, of you know a closed um, mm -hmm. sealed space where you could get all that nice mole bit into the air um, see how, how well it would work in, in other environments yeah it's a classic you know it's it's your proof of concept study mm -hmm. isn't it really like it's proven that you can do something in the most sort of um, what word am I looking for the most ideal setup possible yes yes but um, for sure would be interesting to study like you said in in the environment another question i had which we might need to cut if um they didn't expand on it but i'm wondering did they look in the environmental samples you mentioned before uh, looking in, in water is that something that's been trailed in um more than just a proof of concept because obviously if that's looking in a you know an environment of anything bigger than a, an aquarium, there'll be lots of water currents, for example, that would, again, you'd think dilute any sample DNA. So if that's proved successful in a you know, natural environment, then, then this should prove successful. Did they mention where water DNA has been sampled from? Yeah, so sampling DNA from water is kind of, it's advanced far beyond the proof of concept. Right. It's, it's widely used and we can maybe put some examples in the podcast description. Um, I've definitely encountered a few studies sort of, I say in the recent months, um, for measuring biodiversity um, and environmental analysis of sort of the effects of climate change mm. on how different, well, I'd say fish, but obviously it can be applied to organisms that inhabit an aquatic environment um how climate change and sort of diversifying environmental factors influence their like localization but yeah it's it's an established method is the vocabulary that i'm looking for um oh, for such, such applications so yeah like you said obviously a body of water can be very large so if one is taking that method, translating it to air, you would expect, hopefully this isn't too reductionist, but you would expect that you would achieve sort of a similar result, I guess. The sky is the limit. Oh, wow. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You need to be marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Went last a week. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, thanks very much for, for sharing that study, Molly. I'm really ex excited to see how that expands beyond the proof of concept. But uh, I do believe that it's all the time we have for Opinionated Science this week. Now, we'll be back in two weeks' time with a special episode on organoid technology. So uh, I'll say thanks again, Molly, for, for joining me. 
You are super welcome. Now, wherever you're listening, please share and subscribe to our podcast. And as always, please let us know what you think. Don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now.